the prophecy of Joel, which comes after Daniel and Hosea in the Old Testament, and before Amos and Obadiah. It's on page 1052 in the Church Bible. And uh, we'll read the opening two verses first of all. Joel 2, where the prophet is telling the priests to blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them, even for many successive generations. Now, if you go down to verse 12, verse 12 Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God? Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Again, may he bless the reading of his word, and we'll focus particularly on verse 15, where again the priests are to blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, and call a sacred assembly. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Now, as we've seen over the uh, past few weeks, the Lord sent a national disaster upon Judah, and uh, it took the form of what we would call a natural disaster. It came in the form of four successive and very destructive plagues of locusts. And the people of Judah were very slow to recognize it as the judgment of God, in much the same way as people are very slow to recognize 
the pestilence on ourselves today as being the judgment of God. So God sends this prophet Joel to declare it to the people and to declare that the army of locusts is in fact a chastisement from the Lord. And uh, Joel calls the priests who are the teachers of the people. I know sometimes when we use the word priests, it's very easy for us now to, to think of contemporary priests and Old Testament priests and somehow think of them as the same. But remember that these priests are essentially teachers of the people. They certainly offer the sacrifices in the temple worship, but their regular role from Sabbath to Sabbath was as ordinary teachers of the people. Uh, another prophet tells us that the priest's lips should keep knowledge and that the people should seek the law at his mouth. So the priests were to be well taught in the things of God so that they in turn could teach the people. Now, if the priests slackened at any point, God would raise a prophet in order to speak to them directly from God himself. So Joel tells the priests or the teachers of the people to blow the trumpet, to blow it in Judah in such a way that the people will understand that God is calling them to attention. Now, last Lord's Day, we looked at the first blow of the trumpet, which came in chapter 2 and in verse 1. And we read that at the beginning of our reading, where... A command is given to blow the trumpet in Zion, that's right in the heart of the church in Jerusalem, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Now you'll remember that the alarm was the first use of the trumpet. Uh, depending on how the trumpet was blown and how many trumpets were blown, the people would recognize an alarm. So the prophets were to sound an alarm. And the alarm was used for an army invasion and of course that's what God is saying here it's an army that's coming against you they're not simply locusts and neither are they figuratively an army they are actually an army they are essentially the soldiers of God the commander of this army in verse 11 is the Lord himself the Lord gives voice before his army his camp is very great for the day of the Lord is great and terrible and who can endure it. So the people were to understand that God was against them, at least for a time and in a sense. The Lord has a controversy with his people, as he can have with you as an individual, with ourselves as a congregation, or with the church or the nation. It's a controversy. And his wrath was upon them. Now, I doubt if the people uh, were too open to being told that, it's quite probable that most of them would have preferred to see the locust invasion as just another locust invasion. But in fact, it is God speaking to them. And the first trumpet blow was to alarm them that God was dealing with them like that. What does that mean for us, that God is alarming us and that he is actually chastising us? And of course, if we are not alarmed by these chastisements of the Lord, then we will be exposed to a greater judgment, ultimately to the final judgment, which is foreshadowed here in chapter 2, the great and terrible day of the Lord. So be alarmed is the first thing. 
And it's the first thing that we need ourselves too. I mean, it's, it's no use. I mean, maybe sometimes we have prayed perhaps or even said to each other, well, how do we respond to this? And uh, maybe we respond to it by muddling our way through it, sometimes complaining or whatever. But what is our real spiritual response to this? And according to the prophet, the real fundamental response is to be alarmed that God is angry. I heard a preacher say recently that God, uh, since the New Testament, is never angry with his people. And this is a preacher in a supposedly reformed church that he is never angry with his people. Now, what a load of nonsense that is. And what a load of dangerous nonsense that is. God is sometimes severely angry with his people to the point where he can visit them with death itself. So there is a sense of alarm. Alarm for ourselves as individuals, for our houses and families. Alarm for our churches and alarm for our nations. But this time, God is telling Joel to tell the priests to blow the trumpet a second time. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion again, same location. This time, consecrate a fast and call a sacred assembly. Now, you'll remember from the book of Numbers and uh, what I said on chapter 10 last time, that the second distinctive use of the trumpet was to assemble the congregation together. Again, depending on how many trumpets are blown, the notes that are made and so on, they recognize that we are to, to assemble. We are to gather together as the church of God. And that is the call being issued this time. Blow the trumpet, consecrate a fast, and call a sacred assembly. Now, I suppose the first question that rises is, is a very obvious one. What is the purpose of the gathering? What, what are the people to gather together in Zion for? We'll see tonight that it's a very unusual gathering. Uh, infants and children are to be there even a bride and bridegroom who are getting ready to marry on the particular appointed day. They're to scrap the marriage, at least temporarily. Uh, they're to rearrange it, and they are to appear uh, before the Lord in Zion. It's an unusual gathering, but what's the purpose of it? Well, we find it really in verse 12, where the Lord gives the message that he wants to be proclaimed at this assembly. Now, therefore, says the Lord. And in fact, these verses really take you to the heart of the book of Joel. I mean, if you, if you want to get the heart, to the heart of, of what the book's about, here you are in these verses. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. That's the end of God's particular message. You'll notice then, in the following two verses that Joel adds to it, or, or he applies it, and Joel says, So therefore, because God has said, Turn to me with all your heart, fasting, weeping, and mourning, so he says, Rend or tear your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. 
So in other words, the purpose of the assembly is essentially uh, to turn to God, to do that in a corporate way, to do it in a committed and covenantal way, as, as we'll see again, God willing, tonight, to turn to him corporately as a people. Repentance, returning to the Lord. And it's easy in a way to miss this, but if you read the verses looking for it, you'll notice how often the emphasis on turning appears. Just go back there to verse 12. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me. In verse 13, rend your hearts and not your garments, return to the Lord. So we don't just turn, but we return because we have left him. Return. In verse 14, who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. So we turn, return to God, and God on his part turns to us. Now, I'm conscious that conscious it's uh, stretching your memory a bit, but in fact, I, I looked up and it was in April that I preached this, although I thought it was much more recently, but I took a text from Zechariah 1 and in verse 3. The text was, return unto me and I will return unto you. Now, you may remember that. Return to me and I will return unto you. Now, I'm not going to go over that again. And in fact, I've said quite a bit about repentance, not just then, but since then. Um, but I want you just to remember two things. With a text like that, return to me and I'll return to you. And unlike this turn to me, who knows if he will turn and relent. Remember two things all the time. In, in our present condition, we're to understand that both parties have moved. It's not just us who have moved from God, but God has moved from us too. We have left him, but he has also left us. And we have left him because of our sinful behavior. As believers and as churches and as a nation, we have left him. And the Lord, on his part, has left us. Just like he said through Hosea, that once he had devoured like a lion, he would go away to his lair until the people sought him. God, in other words, has turned from us by visiting us with judgment and by showing us his displeasure. And he has hidden his countenance. And the, the most obvious manifestation of hiding his countenance, sad to say, is the lack of the Spirit of God very often in the assemblies, which produces a lack of the fear of God in assemblies and a lack of impression being made as the word of God is being proclaimed. When God hides his countenance, there's a sense that he's not really there or we are not aware of his blessing. Or if we are aware of him at all, it's in a sense of being distant. There is such a thing as being aware of somebody by, by being aware that he's not there. So the two parties have moved. Return to me and I will return to you. The second thing to bear in mind from when we looked at that last time was that our return must always precede the Lord's return. 
you know, a, a kind of hyper-Calvinist would say something like, oh, no, we can't return, you know, until the Lord returns to us. But that is not scriptural teaching. The scriptural teaching is always that our return must precede the Lord's return. That's the way it always is. And here you have it again. I mean, it was explicit in that text that we had a few months ago, return to me and I'll return to you. Here it's explicit too. In verse 13, return to the Lord your God. And verse 14, who knows if he will turn and relent. So it's our duty to call upon God in repentance. And it's my duty as a present teacher of the word of God, as a minister of God's things, to blow the trumpet on God's behalf and to call you and myself too, myself too, to call us all to repentance before God in the light of the affliction that God has afflicted us with. Now, I want to begin by saying this, that it's the easiest thing in the world for me to call you or even myself or anybody to repentance. Uh, especially if that concept is going to be left general, just as a word hanging there in the air, and if I'm not going to define it for you. Uh, that's easily done. I could put the word repentance 20 times into a sermon and leave you none the wiser as to what it actually means. And I could perhaps even say that I've preached repentance because I've said the word 20 times when I haven't at all. That's one of the great problems in the church, generally. It doesn't define what repentance is. If the essence of the gospel is repentance and faith, as Paul says, repentance towards God and faith in Christ, if Jesus began his ministry by saying, repent and believe the gospel, then the gospel is not being preached if repentance is not properly explained. And that's the shocking truth. In other words, if I was to say to you, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus and you'll go to heaven, I'm not preaching the gospel to you. That's quite a shocking thing to think. But the more you think about it, the more obvious it is. It's not even a solution for me to say to you that it means turning from your sin and obeying God in faith. That's true, but it explains nothing. Why? Because I still haven't told you what sin is. And that's the problem. And that's where so many preachers are strangely choking. Choking. Not somehow able to say what sin is. And that's why God tells another prophet, the prophet Isaiah, to take up a trumpet and he says, declare their sins to my people. Declare their sins to my people. Or in other words, with a trumpet, tell them plainly what's wrong with their lives. Not just by saying you need to believe in Jesus, but tell them what's wrong. Why is my judgment upon them? Why will another judgment come if they do not turn? I think it's helpful, actually, if you just turn to the prophet Isaiah at this point, because I want to refer to a particular chapter in some detail, not a lot, but in some. 
In Isaiah chapter 58, that's page 852 in your Bibles. You'll find the passage that I was referring to. Isaiah 58. Now here again is a trumpet. Cry aloud. That means to say it plainly. Say it plainly. Spare not, which means don't hold back. Don't hold back. But tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Now, it's quite interesting, actually, to follow the chapter through. The peculiar thing is that these people were still religious. In verse 2, we read that they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. As a nation that did righteousness, they thought themselves to be a people that were essentially righteous and serving God, and a people who did not forsake the ordinance of their God. So they were still church-attending people, And they ask of me the ordinances of justice, and they take delight in approaching God. Now, this is quite strange. There's a sense in which everything appears all right. And in fact, when God's judgment came upon them, they obviously held a fast. Because they say in verse 3, why have we fasted? They say, and you have not seen Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? Have any of yourselves asked that question? I mean, when when this affliction began, when this pandemic began to spread through the nations of the West and began to spread through our own, we held a fast. I don't know if you remember that, but we had a fast day. We appointed one as a church. I know that one or two other churches appointed a fast day too. Not the same day, sadly. I'll come back to that tonight as well, God willing. But there was a fast. I'm sure you fasted. I'm sure you prayed. And I'm sure you asked for God to do many things. And have you asked the question since then, why did you not hear us? And why did you not see us fasting? Why did you not hear us praying? Have you asked that question? Well, well, these people wondered in Isaiah's day because their judgment was still there. Why did you not see? And why did you not listen? And God essentially answers them by saying, the reason, he says, for that is because you used your fast as a substitute for repentance. A substitute. Not as part of your repentance, but as a substitute for your repentance. Now, anybody can do this. Unbelievers can do it all the time. Truly Christian people can sometimes do it too. They can take a religious event or activity and use it as a kind of blanket to cover other radical shortcomings in their lives. Isaiah has to rebuke them elsewhere for multiplying religious services in order to cover their injustice and their lying and their cheating and so on. So, Religion becomes a cover for basic disobedience and immorality. And notice how the Lord highlights that here. He says in verse 5, Is 
Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul, in other words, to, to humble yourself, to bow down his head like a bulrush, again, the idea is humility, to spread out sackcloth and ashes, would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Well, would you? Externally, it looks like a fine fast. But he says in verse 6, is this not the fast that I have chosen? And he's getting to the, to the issue here. To loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, that you break the yoke, share your bread with the hungry, that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out. When you see the naked, that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Or again, in, at the end of verse 3, in fact, in the day of your fast, while you're still fasting, you are still finding pleasure. Was that true of us? Was it a case of fasting but watching your favorite programs? And exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate, to strike with the fist of wickedness. The astonishing thing is that these people were, just like I said, using a fast as a reason to let life go on, as it always was before, expecting God to respond to the fact that we fasted. Was that all our day was worth? Did it in any way change me? That's my question for myself. Did it change me that day? Did it start a process in me that day? I remember feeling very led in the very first week or two of the lockdown to preach a particular message from Isaiah in which we were being called into our chambers, called into the secret place and until this would pass. Now, I think some people took that call to heart. I honestly do, even amongst ourselves. As far as I can tell these things, I felt even in some people's prayers in the house of God a, a quickening of spirit and a, a depth of thought and an urgency and pleading that might not have been there before, at least to the same degree. Did I take it to heart? Did, did that stay with you? Did something happen? Did something change? Or has life largely gone on as before? In other words, God says, I'm not pleased with a fast without a repentance. Therefore, tell them their sins. And we saw the sins there. You're still exploiting laborers. God's not pleased with that as employers and as a nation. doesn't want laborers exploited. Care for the poor in verse 7. The poor don't need to be destitute. It just means that you show care for people who are less well-off than yourself practically. Verse 13, he draws serious attention to Sabbath breaking. You turn away, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from trampling it, from doing your pleasure on my holy day. In other words, the Sabbath has become your day, not God's. If you call the Sabbath a delight instead of a pain or something that gets in the way of your work or gets in the way of your football, if you call the Sabbath a delight and if you call the holy day of the Lord honorable, and if you shall honor him on that day, 
not by doing your own ways or finding your own pleasure or speaking your own words, then you will delight yourself in the Lord. In other words, I'll come to meet you. Like the Father came to meet the Son. When you turn back, I'll turn to you, and you'll delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth. Actually, that passage in Isaiah 58 goes right through into 59 and stops there. And, and you can follow the sins that are being highlighted. Chapter 59 is full of the epidemic of lies and injustice in the land, where people can't deal with each other with honesty and integrity. You, you can't trust a word an employer or an employee says. At the end of verse 3, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice, nor does anyone plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil in their hearts, and they bring forth iniquity in their lives, and so on. Just, just read it. Just read it for yourselves. Now, the point here is not the particular things that are being highlighted, but it's the fact that they were pointed out to them as happening. God says to Isaiah, don't give them the generalities of the thing. Don't tell them they're sinners, they need to be saved, there's a heaven and there's a hell, but blow the trumpet and explain to them what the problem is. Now, in the New Testament, there was a, a, a preacher particularly famous for preaching repentance, and his name was John the Baptist. And uh, the preaching of repentance had a prominence there because it was designed to get people ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus. Many people responded to his preaching and were baptized accordingly. But you'll notice when John preached repentance, you'll notice how he itemizes what it involves for all the people concerned. The people said to him, what shall we do? He said, repent. He said, what shall we do? And he said, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. What's that? But a very practical application of what repentance means in your life. Now, we have many tunics. And we have a considerable amount of food. And we have even more excuses for not sharing any of them. The tax collectors came to be baptized and said, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said, collect no more than what's appointed for you. They were a people who were notorious for fleecing their own pockets from the poor. So that's what it means for you. It doesn't mean to pray and to fast. It means that all right. It means that all right. But it means this too, collect no more than what's appointed for you. The soldier said, what shall we do? So he said to them, don't intimidate people. Don't accuse them falsely, abusing your power over them, and be content with your wages. Soldiers were constantly moaning about their wages. And now, if you were to say, let's, let's say I said to you, as I say to you from God today and to myself too, no preacher is above his own message. If I say to you and to myself, repent, you're quite within your eyes to say to me, repent of what? Well, could I even say that one, to be content with your wages? Is that something that offends God, that you are daily moaning about what God has seen fit 
currently to give you. Whatever the righteousness or unrighteousness of that, does that excuse your discontent? Your grumbling, dissatisfied spirit? Oh, you see, but that's, a, that's just a small thing. Well, it was big enough for John the Baptist to say it. Sins that we consider small are bringing the Lord's chastisement upon us. Sins that we consider small are bringing death upon us. Sins that we consider small are casting people to hell. We need to stop thinking of sin like that and start thinking of the body of thing, of, of the thing called sin, as a thing that we need to forsake and to flee from. It's damaging you, it's damaging me. To some extent, it's damaging all of us. And with this pandemic, God is saying that it's doing more damage than you realize. And, and you, need, you need to have a look and to examine it and see what it is. Well, what about ourselves? What is God confronting us with today? Okay, let's say that from looking at the prophecy of Joel, we have understood that the Lord is speaking to us in chastisement. What's he saying? Well, I think we need to make distinctions. We need to distinguish between the sins of the nation, the sins of the church, and the sins of each person. Let me say something about all of these. Now, I'm conscious that these things are largely the dark side of things at the moment. I hope tonight that we'll turn and see things a little more positively, but in these matters, you can't get to the cure without the diagnosis. You, you can't get to the right place without seeing where you are. Let's take first the nation. When God judges nations, as, as we've seen he does, still deals with the nation state as a political entity. He deals with it like that. He doesn't largely judge it by what we would call inward things, the inward state of the hearts of the people who live in that nation. He deals with it according to the way in which it walks morally, according to God's moral law. And a nation like our Western nations that have consciously moved away from the foundation of God's moral law onto a humanistic platform are quoting the judgment of God. We've got to recognize that. And when the Lord calls us to pray for our leaders, we've got to pray for them. And uh, we need to remember this. We need to pray for them as a people who are guilty of this. Guilty of this. Um, a historic sin of moving a whole nation away from a foundation of the law of God onto a humanistic foundation. Um, that has been happening in a significant way and in a conscious way since the 1960s. Very consciously. The abolition of capital punishment in 1965. The Holocaust of the unborn children since 1967. And I mean a Holocaust. I think there are even Christians who don't understand that mass murder is legislated in this country and carried out every day. Do you understand that? That mass murder is legislated for and carried out 
in this country every day since the late 1960s. You have the desecration of the Sabbath itself, again since the 1950s. The first form of desecration was recreation. In other words, as, as God said through Isaiah, doing your pleasure on my holy day. That was the first. But then, increasingly, it came, a came to be a matter of economics and labor, putting people to work on the Sabbath day, which is oppression of laborers, which is an exploitation of people, as well as a breach of God's holy law. That has been since the late 1980s. Recreation first, and then in the name of economics. And then the assault upon marriage, again, since the late 1960s. First, through a laxity regarding divorce laws. And now, of course, by a redefinition of what marriage is to the point where it has become essentially anti-God and anti-Christian. Along with that, the confusion of the genders, which has really come in in the last decade alone. It involves transgenderism and child abuse. Child abuse. Could you have imagined a morality to exist in this country? Let's say, let me only go back, let me only go back 10 years. Could you have imagined a morality existing in this country in which it was all right to say to a boy or to a girl that they can change their sex, that the government will facilitate it to be so and it will be paid for by taxpayers. And that's not called child abuse, but that is, that's child abuse. For the benefit of those who are listening online, I just slapped my own hand. That's child abuse. But changing their sex is not. When they're just little children, essentially, young people, that's how they are termed by any definition under 16 years of age. People are confused about many things in life and they are given irreversible changes to their body. And we expect no judgment at all. Do we, ex do we expect God to tolerate these things? As well as that, there's the liberalization and the legalization of all kinds of pornography and, and a reluctance to outlaw any aspect of it. And I haven't, haven't really exhausted it yet. I haven't even touched on things that are so general that we don't see them anymore, like covetousness and materialism, which God hates. Covetousness, covetousness, amongst the priests and the prophets as well as the people. He hated it. haven't even touched on that because I don't know if we can even discern that anymore. And we need to remember that our leaders are consciously driving this. Consciously. They themselves are sad to say openly immoral and they have no regard to God in public life and in most cases in private too. And we must never forget in all this that our nation is one that bound itself in a perpetual covenant with God. We did that. 1638, 1643. Our nation from top to bottom 
bound itself in a perpetual covenant of obedience to God. But then again, there's the sins of the church. When we say the church is not this and the church is not that and the church is not speaking out, what's wrong? What do we mean? Does the church need to repent? I think I mentioned last time that sometimes when God visited people, he exempted people. He exempted his church. And in Egypt, he exempted Goshen from the plagues the people of God were kept from the darkness, from the frogs, from the lice, from the locusts. Here they're not. In fact, it's directly affected the worship in Joel. You'll remember that. They could not go through with their grain offering and their wine offering. It's impossible to give. What's wrong with the church? Well, it's as well to begin in the pulpits, is it not? There is unfaithfulness in the prophets. Error is condoned. Error is taught. The truth is withheld for fear of giving offense. I heard recently of a person who says he believes in hell but won't preach it because he will lose some of his congregation. He should be far more concerned with losing his soul than his congregation. Far more concerned. Are too many ministers putting their own interests before the cause of God? Their comforts too? Is worldliness not in the church? In the pulpit? I mentioned last week ministers who will watch sporting events between services. Sloth. There are, minist- there are, there are sermons being delivered and it would cost you 10 minutes of your time to prepare them. All you would do is just borrow an outline which are easily available, fill it out for five, ten minutes, and you've got it. Sloth. When Paul told Timothy to meditate on these things and to give himself entirely to them so that he might be a workman who would have no need to be ashamed, is that what it cost Paul to preach the word of God? Was that what it cost these prophets to preach the word of God when they said that a burden sat so heavily upon them until they could discharge it? Sloth and laziness in the study and proclamation of the word of God. It's there. It's there. And then again, amongst the rest of us, there's the irreverence in worship. The casual attitude that is being urged all the time whether it's in dress, in posture, or in whatever, casual. As though appearing before God was casual. Irreverence in what's done, the jocular nature of the message, where, where the preachers can't seem to help referring to themselves in a jocular manner all the time, as though it's about them. At the end of the day, it's not really about me or you. It's about God. God must be honored in me and honored in you. There's the absence of church discipline. Anything goes. A disregard for the unity of the church. Nobody cares. I'll say more about that tonight too, God willing. And so it goes on. Now, it's not enough to blow the trumpet. Uh, Isaiah blew it and was told to blow it, to take the trumpet, to lift it up, and to declare my people 
to my people what the sins are. It's not enough. Why? Because, well, if somebody blew a trumpet, I can always put my fingers in my ears anyway. And I can always find a way, as you can, to exempt myself from the charge and give a reason why the charge list just doesn't fit me. That's easy to do. That's why there's no substitute for self-examination. To get a true spirit from God. What do I need to repent from? Well, let it not just be the preacher who tells me what I need to repent from. Let me search my own ways and examine myself and see what I need to repent from. Is, is my heart clean? Are my hands pure? When, uh, when Jerusalem had finally been wasted in Jeremiah's day, the weeping prophet, who, who told them it was going to happen, when Jerusalem was flattened and razed to the ground and the, those who were left were absolutely destitute, Jeremiah said, let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. It's, a, it's an interesting thing because he, he had told them so often it would happen and, and they didn't believe it. And now that it has happened, he says, well, find out why and see how it can be fixed. I mean, Jeremiah had reached a point um, where God had actually told him that it wouldn't avail to pray, to pray anymore for the people. And um, I think that's a very, a very solemn passage that we looked at a while back. Um, Ezekiel said the same thing. Um, God, God said this, um, if by persistent unfaithfulness, if, if by persistent unfaithfulness a land um, sins against me, I will stretch out my hand against it. And he said that he would inflict a plague upon it. I will send a pestilence into that land. And even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would not deliver son or daughter, but only themselves by their righteousness. Now, you'll remember that Noah, Daniel, and Job were the, the godliest people in their own generation. You'll also remember that they were trumpet blowers. Noah preached to the world, including those closest to himself. Daniel preached the word, and Job proclaimed the word. But they would only save themselves. In other words, God saying, I'm done with Jerusalem. Not forever, but I'm really going to let it go until it's time for favor is set. And then it will be rebuilt, but I'm going to let it go. That's the difference between Scotland suffering from something like COVID and Scotland being really brought to destitution. And a point can be reached where God says, it's happening, and that's that. You can blow the trumpet as much as you like, or even blow it as much as I tell you to blow it. It won't actually change. It won't actually change. So for all of us, we need that self-examination. Search out and examine your ways and turn back. Now, have you tried to do that? There's a problem. Maybe you know that the reasons for everything reaches right into your own home and into your own heart. Well, why not 
sit down or go on your knees and say, Lord, help me now to search out what's gone wrong in my life, to examine it critically, search it out first, examine it critically, and then put it right. That's the process. Identify, look at it, and put it right. Maybe it might be relatively gentle. Remember from whence you have fallen or you have left your first love. Maybe it's relatively gentle like that. I'm not saying that these are small things, but in fact, they're big in their own way, but maybe that's all it is. And God wants you to go back to your first love and back to where you fell from. Remember the zeal of your first love when you went after God in the wilderness. Remember the ardor and the passion that you had for the things of God the commitment that you had in your own heart to your own personal holiness, your commitment to pray and to teach your family or whatever it was. Have you fallen from them? Have you fallen from them? And perhaps um, there's so much more. Among, amongst the generality of the Lord's people, Sabbath breaking, has that touched you? in terms of recreation or work? Is something different there compared to where it was before? Is your life somehow given over to pleasure in a way that it didn't used to be as a Christian? Are you increasingly unable to live without the stimulation of constant pleasure? Has the culture of party and celebration affected you and your thinking? The, the idolatry of sport and leisure? Is there a temptation to put on a sporting event? on the television, on a Sabbath day, carelessness in worship. What about providing fellowship for young, hungry Christians? Is, is it the case that there once was a time and a place where young, hungry Christians could find lots of homes that would be willing to have them in to speak about the things of the Lord, but suddenly these homes are shut for whatever reason? For whatever reason, they're shut. All these things... Is it the case that you're giving your ears to music, which is deadening your soul to God? Are you opening your eyes to films and entertainment programs that are deadening your soul in exactly the same way? Do you need repentance? Do you need rededication? Do you even care? Do you care? Now, all that is involved internally. There's a plague, there's a plague, and God's saying, turn to me. You turn from that, or something else that I haven't even mentioned. God knows, and you'll know too if you ask him. We can even sit in services like this and not even pray meaningfully to God that you would speak to me and show me myself. You just do it, come to church, and go home, and have your lunch. But we need to turn. But the priests, of course, need to deliver that to the congregation. And they need to do something more. They need to tell them the kind of God that they're turning to. And how urgently they need to turn. Let's uh, look at some of these things later tonight. God willing, let's stand to pray. <clears throat> Lord, our God, we pray all of us to consider the ways that 
we have walked ourselves and uh, to recognize if we are making genuine progress or whether we are indeed in regression. And it is uh, never easy to fairly and properly diagnose ourselves. Sometimes we can write hard things against ourselves when we need not, but we are conscious that it is far easier to excuse ourselves when we ought to confront reality and uh, deliver us from the pointing of the finger of which Isaiah spoke. And the, the tendency to look upon others rather than looking upon ourselves. And we are charged first and foremost with the salvation of our own souls and ensuring that we ourselves walk uh, holily and uprightly before the Lord. So we ask that you would give us grace in these things and respond properly to our times. In the Redeemer's name, amen. Let's uh, close our service by reading in Psalm 19. Now, I think we had this particular extract last week, but it's um, so applicable again that we should, I think, sing it. Page 224 in your psalm book, page 224. We'll hear it sung to the tune Ayrshire. And the writer of the psalm has been looking at his life in the light of the holiness of God's word and character. And he says, who can his errors understand? Now, that doesn't mean that he's just kind of content to leave it like that. He says, O oh, cleanse thou me within from secret faults. These are things that are lurking around and you're just not really willing to look at them. Thy servant keep from all presumptuous sins. Now these are sins that you've just come to the conclusion that you can just in some way or another carry on with them. Do not suffer them to have dominion over me. Then righteous and innocent I from much sin shall be. The Hebrew there is ambiguous. Much sin can also mean the great sin or the great transgression. Perhaps that's its meaning, which is uh, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The words which from my mouth proceed, the thoughts sent from my heart, accept, O Lord. Notice how careful the psalmist is in his life. For though my strength and my Redeemer art. We'll hear these words sung. <laughs> Thank mm-hmm. you.
stand to receive the blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.